there won't be any slides this morning, so they're, they're not being derelict. Uh, they've been conscientious. I just wanted to give them clearance in case you're wondering, where are the slides? John didn't do any, so there aren't any. Disappointment in our lives, I believe, points to the places where typically we long for discernment. You think about the word disappointment. You know, when you've got an appointment, something's set. You're finally going to get closure. Whatever that need is, you're going to meet with the right person they're going to sign it, they're going to stamp it, they're going to deliver it, and you'll be able to go forward with closure. But that three letters in front of this means it's a broken appointment. Uh, what we anticipated, what we hoped for, what we might have longed for for a long time will not be our reality going forward. It's in those times that we're sort of like the two on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the unnamed companion on their walk. We had trusted the King James Translation, uh, New Living Translation, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. The crucifixion dashed their hopes of Jesus ascending to David's throne in Jerusalem at that time and overthrowing Rome, the empire would live on. We had hoped. He was the one who would come, who had come to rescue Israel. That's a prominent story at the close of Luke's gospel, his prequel. I want us to turn our attention for most of our time in my sermon, to the close of his sequel, the book of Acts. Uh, last week, and I'm still not totally sure, while we were trying to discern God's work in Megan's life and story, and implications of that for our lives here, and anticipating that I would be preaching this Sunday. The story that we're going to look at popped into my mind with a clarity that's unusual for me, a week ahead of a sermon. But anyway, uh, you may say, indigestion, John. <laughs> we're going to start in Acts 27. Beginning with verse 1, a uh, little backdrop to this chapter that I've never preached from, never heard a sermon from. Uh, the events have been referenced and the passage has been read in adult Sunday school classes, but I've never heard it talked about with the area of discernment and this may be the one and only time that'll happen. Uh, like I said, I'm still not sure. Um, somebody might say, well, John, if you're not sure, why didn't you pick something you're more sure about? That's a, that's a great question for discernment. But it's not where we're going today. Um, Paul has gone to Jerusalem. Uh, the men who are bringing gifts from the different Gentile churches to care for the poor in the Judean area who've gone through a, a, a terrible time of, uh, of drought and disappointment has appeared in the temple and some from the areas where he's been working in, in Macedonia and Achaia are there and they see him in the city 
a few days earlier with some of his Gentile friends. And now they see him in the, the temple precincts and they assume uh, Paul's brought Gentiles into this holy ground. And they stir up a, a, a disruption. And Paul, I'm sure, would have been stoned to death except for one Roman officer named Claudius Lysias who has been stationed in Rome over a garrison of troops to keep peace in this city that was notorious for its seditious uprisings. Imagine how bad your career has to be when they put you at a place that was especially prone for disruptions. Or maybe he was just a particularly effective officer that they thought might be able to bring peace. At any rate, they're rushing Paul out of this area and Lysias comes in and takes him from the mob, starts to take him up the steps. He asks if he can speak to the crowd and he speaks to them in their Hebrew language. And when he starts speaking Hebrew, they quieten down until he gets to the part that God's opened the door for the Gentiles. And then they start flapping their robes in the dust and such a storm is created that Lysias takes him on in to the area where the soldiers garrison and commands that he be flogged to get the truth out of him. And it's at that point that Lysias finds out that Paul is actually a Roman citizen and you don't beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And Lysias reveals that he had bought his citizenship at a really high price. The Jewish people are intent on putting him to death And so there's a group of 40 guys who band themselves together. They're not going to eat or drink until they kill him. And they reach out to Lysias to bring him in for questioning. And he's of a mind to do that until Paul's nephew comes and says, they're planning to kill him. And your responsibility to keep the peace isn't going to go so well. So in the cover of night, Lysias sends mounted soldiers and a larger contingent of foot soldiers to get him out of the city and take him to Caesarea by the sea to the governor of this region. Let him take care of it. He spends two years in prison there and that first governor is replaced by another governor. And the second governor, now those guys haven't fasted these two years. But they're still committed to killing him. They try to get him brought back to Jerusalem. And at that point, Paul appeals to Caesar. And this is where we pick up in chapter 27, verse 1. He's assigned to an, a soldier who's to take him to Rome. So he can make his appeal to Caesar. Acts 27.1 When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again. Passed to the lee, the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia, 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Notice Luke is along on this part of the journey. He's using these plural pronouns, we, us. And he's mentioned some others by name who are along as well. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty, came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the feast, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to the advice of what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. You got this setting? Sort of fits in with Ben's comments earlier in the greeting. It's not about the water outside the boat. It's about the water inside the boat. Later on in this passage, we're going to encounter the soldiers doing something that for a long time, readers, skeptical readers of the book of Acts, thought was a sure sign. It was just made up fiction. But some more recent archaeological indicators have pointed Otherwise, how do you keep the water out of a boat made out of wood that for all the world looks like it's about to break up? That, that was the challenge, and we'll encounter this. Paul's warned them, we, we shouldn't go on. This, this is not going to go well. But the centurion wants to get to Rome. The captain of the ship is confident in his crew and his sailing abilities, regardless of the storms. And the owner of the ship wants his payday. And even though Paul has already been given some freedoms, by this centurion. He's, he's allowed to spend time with friends on one of the ports of call. And they've taken care of Paul, so the centurion didn't have to. Um, they listen for what they want to hear. He listens, the centurion, for what he wants to hear. Verse 13, a gentle south wind began to blow. When that happened, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they lifted anchor, they sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm, could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we pass to the, the lee, the, the southern part of the small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. That, that's the piece that I was mentioning earlier. For a long time, this reference in the book of Acts was the only historic place, historical document, that gave any evidence of ropes 
you drop them at the front, let the movement of the water push them toward the back, and you tie them around. Now, folks, this is not a boat the size that Jesus and the disciples were in on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's one of those from that time period that survived in the mud at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee that was discovered. And those small boats were about the size that, guess what, 13 people could get in. Jesus and his 12, just the right size. But we're going to notice as we read on here in this chapter, there are more than 270 people on this ship. This, this is probably not quite as big as the World War II vessel that Ben was on in the Navy. Um, but this, this is a large seagoing vessel. But they're cinching it up to try to get it to hold together. That's how serious this storm is. When the men had hoisted this uh, small boat, lifeboat, made it up on the ship, made it secure, they put these ropes under, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. Payday's getting less every day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. You know it's desperate when you get rid of everything that you can use to steer and control this thing. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone for a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, I told you so. That, that's the modern description of what he's about to say. Men, you should have taken my advice. Not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in the God that, I, that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being dri driven along across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. I've always wondered how this happened. They took soundings. They, they dropped a weighted rope and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Maybe this is something they were just doing along the way and they became aware that it was becoming more shallow. They took soundings, found the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings, and again, it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul stood up to the centurion, 
or said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, you remember what you were doing two weeks ago? You know, two weeks is quite a bit of time. We would typically say, I've slept several times since then, but we're not sure they have. They've not eaten to speak of. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense, have gone without food, you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar, ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. And the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan He ordered that those who could swim jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And this way, everyone reached the land in safety. Who do you want to be in this story if we were doing a play? Would you want to be Paul? Would you want to be the centurion? Would you want to be the ship owner? Would you want to be the soldiers? Greg's shaking his head. No, I don't think he wants to be on this ship at all. It's going down. Maybe you'd like to be the angel. Now think about the message that was given to Paul. What does it actually entail? Paul, you're going to make it through this nightmare of a voyage. I've got a mission for you. You're going to bear witness to me in front of Caesar in Rome. And I want you to know I've given you the 275 other people on this ship. but you're going to have to get them to listen to you to get there. Would you want that assignment? Somebody says, I I don't swim well enough. You know, don't, don't put me on a ship of any size, let alone in a storm. This is an interesting section of narrative for me. Like I said, I've never preached from it. I was full-time ministry preaching, being a primary part of that, 31 years. Why this passage popped in my brain last Sunday is a stretch, even for me. This morning in Sunday school class, we were discussing a little bit about Myers-Briggs personality type indicator and extrovert-introverted differences. Uh, Another one of those letters is intuitive, and that's where 
That's probably the strongest of my characteristics. And there are times I think it's a real blessing because there are things that I connect that other people miss. There are other times it gets a little bit out there. And that's what I'm thankful that I'm an introvert. Because I don't share all of those possibilities. I, I don't process to them like an extrovert would. Extroverts just going to blurt them on out there. And then some of the rest of us are going to have to clean up the mess that maybe is left behind when they eventually get to where they're going. Uh, how do we deal with disappointments? When Paul went to Jerusalem with that gift gathered from all of those Gentile believers with all of those personal representatives. Notice the ends that he goes to when it comes to dealing with money. Paul doesn't collect those gatherings and take them himself. Among the Gentile churches, he has been incredibly patient and persistent in, in making sure that he never created an opening where people could say he's just in it for the money. Because there were, there were a lot of charlatans. He alludes to that in, in some of his letters in, in Corinth, when he writes Corinth, about this very issue of the gathering, of the collection. Paul's not going to give an opening there, there's going to be a personal representative or more from the churches carrying those funds. His goal is that this will help bring a greater unity between primarily Jewish churches and primarily Gentile churches. You know, I gave the general title Discerning in the Book of Acts because I thought... Maybe I was really supposed to look at Acts 15, a fascinating passage on discernment. And it's one Greg or John or myself, somebody in this trio probably needs to deal with at some point, probably after the first of the year. When this issue of what are the terms Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus can comfortably sit at the same table in open fellowship. And it's, it's a fascinating topic in the area of discerning God's will. You know, when we're working through our disagreements, when we're going through our conflicts, how do we sit down and see each other as people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. When we disagree on such fundamental topics. In Acts 15, the, the believers who came out of the Pharisaical group think it's easy. Just, just let them keep the whole law. You know, we, we've always had this category of proselytizing the Gentiles circumcise the males, let them keep the whole law, everything will be easy then because they'll be us and not them. And that's not the resolution that Acts 15 settles on. But I still kept feeling like, no, I needed to deal with this passage Paul goes to Jerusalem, and even on the way there, he receives a prophetic word that what happens in Jerusalem is not going to go well. And that message is so impactful that the believers at that location try to keep him from going to Jerusalem. Paul, God said it's not going to go well, so you shouldn't go. 
And he says, no, I'm going. Regardless of, of what the outcome is. There are times in my Christian journey that I have to confess I have naively assumed a clear, direct word from God would make all this so much easier. And then the more time I spend in the book of Acts and other parts of Scripture, the more I realize, not necessarily, John. Because every time God reveals what's coming next, then his people have to grapple with, okay, what do we do with this new information? And how do we process our disappointment with what he's about to either actively do or allow to come to pass? How do we align ourselves and our anticipations with this new information? Paul has spent years nurturing a strong, healthy, interconnected relationship between Gentile churches and Jewish churches. And going to Jerusalem is going to be the crowning moment of that. And yet on the way he gets this word. It's not going to go well. So maybe he ought to just allow them to take the money on and do the good and he could protect himself. That's where the other believers seem to shake out. Some clarity about what's coming doesn't remove responsibility for how we respond. I think it actually heightens our area of responsibility. So notice Paul gets this word from the Lord on the ship from an angel. I'm giving you all of the people on the ship. But you got to keep them all alive. That, that's the whole deal with the soldiers. You see, their concern is if we lose the prisoners, any of them, we're in trouble. And you know, their commanding officer that they were going to report to in Rome could say, off with your heads. You lost your guys. You know the end of that. What, what they're planning to do isn't bizarre at all for a pagan. Paul has an unusual relationship with Claudius Lysias. Alluded to, directly referenced in this passage. Last week, one of the things that was said in our sharing was Rachel Kustra. Is that a correct pronunciation? I've not said your name out loud. Rachel commented uh, out of her ministry efforts uh, in schools with teenagers is you have to show up enough to earn the right to be heard. A lot of discernment there. You know, it, it was a part of what we were prayerful for, looking to at Mitchell Nielsen. We, we would show up long enough and under persistent enough circumstances that, that we would gain a hearing, a favorable hearing, and God granted us that with the former principal, and we've not been able to reestablish that connection yet. 
And so I have to personally confess there's been some disappointment for me. There. Some puzzlement. Questions. How do we discern in the midst of disappointment? I wish, I wish we knew more. What about Paul captured this centurion's interest, concern, curiosity, investment? Paul's relationship with him grows to the place that he feels comfortable going to him at the beginning, you know, before they get on that last ship and saying, we shouldn't go. It's too late in the sailing season. There, there are too many random storms that pop up. This is not going to go well. Now, did Paul already have a sense from God this is not going to go well, or was that just his awareness? Had he lived around the sea enough through his life that he knew, you know, you get beyond the feast, and bad things are much more likely to happen. That's possible. We don't know. Luke doesn't give us any more backstory on that. But Paul is able to communicate openly, directly. But in this situation, his counsel is rejected. What do you do when you're a part of a team who wants to go somewhere you don't think they ought to try to go to? Well, you say, Paul really wasn't a part of the team. He's a captive He didn't have a choice, and that's true. He did, but he did have the opportunity to speak into the situation, and he did. In a respectful way, but a direct way. And later on, he does say, I told you. He reminds them. You know, I, I shared with you we shouldn't have started on this journey. Fair Havens wasn't the ideal port for the winter, but it was the place we should have stayed. Interesting name, Fair Havens. But they knew there was a better port a bit further on. They didn't know the Northeaster was going to sweep down over them and push them out to sea. Paul shows up enough that when the soldiers are wanting to kill all of the prisoners and Paul says to Lysias, you're only going to make it if we all get there. If we're all given the chance to get there. That Lysias is able to use his command power and say, no, don't kill them. The ones of you who can swim, go ahead and jump into the sea. The ones who can't, you grab a big chunk and float to the shore. And 276 people end up on the safety of the shore. And all kinds of interesting things happen from their own. Those of you who've read the rest of Acts know. You know, they're building a fire to warm themselves up and a serpent comes out of the brush because of the heat and latches on to Paul's hand. And everybody assumes if he is so bad that he escaped from that storm and now a serpent has bit him, he's sure to die. That's how the 
Um, the gods are out to get us. Mindset works. And Paul shakes it off and it falls into the fire and no ill effects. I don't want to sign up for the role of Paul. Don't, don't want anything to do with snakes. The chief official of the island's father is in really bad shape with dysentery. Paul heals him. Word gets around every sick person on the island is brought and Paul is able to pray for their healing and it comes. And so 2810 says, They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. You probably got more questions about this passage than I've been able to give answers There's something for me that's powerful about the idea that God's blessing is intended for all of the people on the ship. It would have been a whole lot easier to just take care of Paul. But see, God's doing something bigger than just you or me or your family or my family. Deborah's in Atlanta with a friend helping another friend. Everything's good, just in case you wondered why the pew is empty. I could have answered to everybody going out the door who might have asked, but just in case some of you wouldn't have asked, I wanted you to know. One of our great struggles in the U.S. and our culture is we're schooled and trained and shaped into selfishness. When I'm talking with philosophers, and I don't get around those guys very much, I, I use the term rank individualism or rank individuality. It stinks. It reeks of selfishness. And we have to be careful within our spiritual realms that our longing after discernment isn't an exercise in selfishness. Where instead of saying we had hoped or we had trusted, we would say, I just knew this was going to be my next job or she was going to be my wife or he was going to be the partner in the business that I always wanted to see flourish or whatever those other disappointments are. Paul exhibits a trust that God has a purpose that entails his life, but it's more significant than his wants and wishes. Years ago, Ben Austin taught a class here in the auditorium, a, a, an adult Sunday school class on the book of Acts. And he raised the, the possibility, and I don't remember whether he had run across this with somebody else or sort of tumbled to it himself, that Luke and Acts were written while Paul was in prison. Maybe Caesarea by the sea maybe in Rome, as a defense brief for the trial that was anticipated in front of Caesar. Fascinating theorem. 
no, no places we could go to prove or disprove it. But it's an interesting option. The detail of this story, for my reading, doesn't work against it at all. Might actually sort of point to it. Because this is the one place where we get that direct statement. You're, you're going to bear witness to me in front of Caesar. Now, we won't take the time, but I would encourage you, if you go back and you read all of Luke 24, and Chuck read most of it, but if you read on to the end, that prequel ends with Jesus' statement that his testimony, his, his significance is going to go to the whole world. And now the sequel ends with it going to Rome. The capital, the center of the Mediterranean world at that time. Some of you might say, well, John, it's easier to do that kind of thinking when God's given you direct information about the purpose of your life. Maybe. Maybe we have to push against that individuality, that selfishness that we tend toward. And we've got to prayerfully, carefully look back over what's he been saying to us along the way of our lives. Through scriptures, the guys asked me if I had, a, had any slides, uh, and I said no. Aiden asked me, making sure since Kyle's not here, they, they were prepared. And I appreciate that, Aiden. Uh, I did think about one. It was a meme. You know, the, 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 there's a guy and a gal, the cat stuff that back and forth. Uh, there's one where the, the guy and the gal, I think they're in a car. Uh, he says, I just wish I could hear God's voice. And her response is, it's there in Scripture. And he says, no, out loud. And she said, you can read it out loud. You know, if you've got to hear it out loud, if that's the qualifier for hearing it from God, have you read it to yourself lately? Now, in our lives, there are times where we wrestle with decisions that are coming up deeply, and, and we should. And we come to a sense of clarity that okay, this is what God wants us to do in this next phase of our lives, and, and we're going to pour ourselves into it. And then we, or as an intuitive guy, I spin out lots of other scenarios of, okay, that means this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, this is going to happen. For example, in 19, this is ancient history for many of you, uh, 1985, we moved to Maryland for me to work on a Ph.D. so I could come back to Tennessee and teach at Lipscomb or Fried Hardeman or Harding or ACU. At that point, I probably wouldn't have even considered Pepperdine, which was foolishness if you've ever stood on that campus. But then again, maybe it was me knowing myself well enough. I, my one trip to Pepperdine, I stood there and I said, I don't know. It, it's a good thing I didn't come to school here. I wouldn't have ever been in class. I just sat there on the bank stargazing the, the beauty of the ocean. 
um, moved there, started working with the church. We didn't have any children yet. Kenneth was on the way. Uh, he was born in August after we got there in May. Uh, I started taking classes in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania because I needed additional hours on a master's level. Kept preaching, pastoral ministry, going to courses, taking classes. Almost seven years later, we came home for a summer two-week vacation. Mark, my brother, seated at the back, and I usually would get together and play a round of golf. The golf was always pitiful, but the conversations were quite interesting. And... I don't know, we might have gotten through the first hole. Mark said, Stones River's looking for a preacher. You ought to send in a resume. I said, nah, I, I don't think so. We've only recently appointed elders at the church and I think there's still a lot that we need to do in Maryland. And he kept talking and he revealed that he and Carol were a part of a search committee that had been appointed to seek out people to apply. I discounted it largely because he's my brother. And maybe he's wanting us back closer to home and family. And we really wanted that because Deborah's grandmother's health was declining and Thirteen hours away is a long ways away. But you see, one of the times we, one of the seasons of discernment that we poured ourselves into is the travel in our vehicle. Thirteen hours with not a lot of other things you can do. You know, keep the kids from killing each other. When they were old enough, they were pestering, asking how long. Now, are we there yet for the hundredth time? But when they were asleep, we would process, you know, how are things going? What, what do we think God's doing on the way down? And then on the way back, we're sort of dreaming and anticipating what, what should we pour ourselves into more? Where, what, where should we go? What should we do? And because of her grandmother's health and the increasing age of our parents and others and the fact that our kids really didn't know them very well, we raised the idea, you know, maybe, maybe we ought to think about Tennessee. I'd already come to the realization that I wasn't going to pursue a doctorate because that just wasn't going to work with pastoral ministry. And I really sensed God was calling me in that direction. And I wasn't willing to let my family suffer any more than they did. And we came to the realization, uh, we probably shouldn't pursue anything. And then, almost as an afterthought, I said, but you know, if a church were to reach out to us, we probably ought to consider it because that might be something God's moving in. So at Henry Horton Golf Course, I have this new dilemma when I realize, remember that conversation, I'm saying no to my brother really quick. Am I saying no to God? And so I took back my no and said, 
I need to talk to Deborah and we're going to need to pray about this. I'm not committing to sending in a resume. And when I told Deborah, her first words were no. <laughs> and I reminded her of our earlier conversation and she said, well, we can pray about it. Now we've been here so long, it's hard to imagine being anywhere else. It wasn't a lightning bolt of clarity. It was a moment of remembering. We want to be open to God. When you're seeking to discern something in your life, involve the other people that it will impact, is my suggestion. But especially focus your talking and discussions and prayer around what's God already revealed. And trust that He can do some things in the Hebrew, I mean, in, in the Ephesians 3 language, there at the end of Ephesians 3, that will be exceeding abundantly more than all you might ask or imagine. If Megan had been really quick to pick up Spanish, would the work that's ongoing now have lived on? Show up long enough that you earn the right to be heard. Now, recognize that doesn't automatically mean that everybody's going to grant it to you. The soldiers didn't care. But the centurion was the only one who had the final right to make the decision, and he did. Don't be so quick to assume you've got it all figured out. God may have a bigger plan. He always does. And you may have to go through some very hard days on the way to that. Fourteen days in a storm that Luke says we'd given up all hope of being saved. It's not an easy way forward. Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during those years of imprisonment. Maybe Luke Acts was compiled during some of those times. Paul gave testimony to Caesar from God. Faithfulness entails persevering. Will you pray with me in closing? Father, we thank you that you are the God who can carry us through the storm. Sometimes it's by making the sea calm. And sometimes it's by giving us a chunk of the broken up vessel to float to shore. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. But most of all, that you are a God who cares. Help us to trust in your care. To keep our eyes and ears open what you want us to know and help us to show up. In Jesus we pray. Amen.